please. Psalm 46, if you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, you'll find today's text on page 301. 301 of the black Bibles that are provided, and we'll be considering this morning Psalm 46. We've already read this text together, so I'm not going to take the time to read it again, but we are going to march through it verse by verse, so I would encourage you to have a Bible open in your lap and uh, follow along. As we often will say, we have nothing to say except what God has already said. And so in that, uh, in that respect, we will be marching through verse by verse, uh, Psalm 46, understanding it better, and then applying it to our own um, our own walk, our own journey. Let's just take a moment to look to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help as we consider this His Word. Father, we are thankful for the fact that You reveal Yourself to us. Were it not for Your revelation of Yourself, we would know nothing of You. Um, And Lord, we are humbled that You have chosen to reach to fallen men, to reveal Yourself, and then most of all, Lord, to give Christ Your Son so that we can have provision for forgiveness of sin. I pray, Lord, that You would use this passage in our hearts, in our lives, speak to us by it through Your Holy Spirit, we pray in Your Son's name. Amen. Well, it's that time of year again. On Thursday night of this week, you will have a bunch of ghosts and goblins making their way around, knocking on your door, asking you to give them candy. Some will be dressed up as cartoon figures. Others will be dressed up as comic book figures. Some will be in scary attire, looking like something out of a horror movie, and you'll chuckle and think how not scary that costume is. But you know, Halloween is that time of year, right, where, where the whole thing is all about being scary and, and spooky and the things that scare me. And everybody go to haunted houses. Uh, it doesn't really thrill me all that much, but some people really enjoy getting scared. There's a, there's a reason for that, by the way. But, uh, you know, somebody jumps out from behind the corner with, uh, with a chainsaw or, or with... Uh, with a face mask on that is very startling and, and you scream and you run and all of those things that are associated with Halloween, right? You enjoy being scared. What is it that scares you? I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're walking around in this time of year and somebody jumps out and scares you. And then you think to yourself, well, that's just the neighbor kid. There's really nothing to be worried about. What, what is it that, that causes fear? Many of you know that I do a lot of work in this arena of, of trauma, and there's this really interesting phenomenon that takes place in the brain that we kind of shorthand call the fight-or-flight response. Right? You, have, you have a couple sections of your brain, and different parts of your brains do different things, and you've got what up in here in the front part is called the prefrontal cortex, or the frontal lobes. That's the part that does that does math, that's the part that, that thinks, that, that, that reasons things out. But, but kind of tucked up behind your nasal passages is there's this little, this little almond-sized shape in your brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is your alarm center. 
It's always monitoring for threats. It's always comparing things in your environment to memories from the past of things that, that were scary, that, that startled you, that, that worried you. And, and as, as the amygdala kind of monitors what's going on, if it sees anything in the environment, if it detects anything in the environment that is a potential threat, it sets off the alarm bells. And this, this, pre, this, uh, this amygdala, when it sets that off, uses all of these neurochemicals to elicit what we call the fight or flight response. And there's three kind of primary neurochemicals that do that, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol. There's a whole cocktail of, of neurochemicals that produce this response, but those are the three that are the main drivers behind, you know, your pulse goes up, right, your muscles tighten, uh, your pupils get very wide. Everything's ready to, to fight or to run. It's a fight or flight response. And so while the, the, the neurobiology is really interesting, we, we have to ask ourselves, is that really fear? Is that what, what really causes fear? Or is that just the, the response? Because here's what happens, right? Somebody jumps out from behind a corner and they startle you and all of that kicks in. That fight-or-flight response kicks in. But then your body calms back down when you realize when your prefrontal cortex takes back over and it says, wait a minute, this is, there's no real threat here. This is just some guy in a costume. There's really nothing to be worried about, and your body kind of settles back down into this equilibrium called, called homeostasis, this kind of this normal day-to-day -day function of your body. What sustains fear is how we... Think about what is happening to us. For us to really be fearful, we have to take a, a certain perspective of things. Epictetus was an ancient Greek Stoic philosopher, and he said this, Men are disturbed not by things, but by the views which they take of things very insightful because for us to sustain fear, for us to have fear, we really have to look at the situation a certain way. We have to recognize that thing in our environment or that situation as that which could harm us. And that is what makes us fearful on a, on a deeper, more meaningful level. And so it's very important how we think about things. It's very important how we interpret the things around us. Now, let's be careful. We don't want to fall into kind of a, a power of positive thinking, right? If you, if you look at everything rosy, if you're, if you're positive, if, if the glass is half full, that can quickly descend into kind of a meaningless sentimentalism, right? Because if, if we look at things positively, but there's nothing concrete, there's nothing objective to ground those positive thoughts in, it's just sentimentality. If there's no actual cause for hope. So for the Christian, it's much more important. It's still important how we think, but it's, it's important that our thoughts, that our, the way we look at the situation is rooted in truth, in what is objectively real about God. So what is our reason for thinking differently? How is it that we as believers can look at the situation around us and as the psalmist says here, not to fear? It's because of the character of God 
himself. The inhabitants of Jerusalem found themselves in a fearful situation. Sennacherib was the mighty king of Assyria. And one by one, he had knocked down the enemies all around Jerusalem. The only people that were able to escape his sword were the ones that paid him tribute and became his servants. And now Sennacherib's armies come up against Jerusalem. They surround the city. Can you imagine looking out and seeing the world's greatest army of that day surrounding your city? There's no way in. There's no way out. There's no way to get food into the city. And you know that Sennacherib's armies are not only the biggest and the most powerful, but they are the cruelest armies on the planet. Sennacherib sends his messengers, and this is what happened, to yell up to the, up the wall, to tell the, to tell the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, give up now. Every other group around you has been defeated, and you will be too. Don't trust Hezekiah the king. Don't trust your God. Surrender. Those are scary times for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so they were fearful. They were afraid. In fact, Hezekiah the king went into what was the custom of mourning for that day. He, he, he tore his clothes. He put... He put ashes on himself and he, and he went into mourning and the people began to cry out to God and in comes the prophet Isaiah who says, basically, Vandalinder version, don't worry, God's got this. Right? He, said, he said, don't fear, don't be afraid. God has a plan in all of this. We see this account recorded for us in 2 Kings 18 and 19, in 2 Chronicles 32, and in Isaiah 36 through 37, if you have time this week, I would encourage you to read it. But here's what the prophet says, as recorded in 2 Kings. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. But the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And that's exactly what God did. One morning, they woke up and they looked out over the camp of Assyria and 185,000 bodies lay out on the ground. The angel of the Lord came during the night and slaughtered a large portion of the Assyrian army. And without so much as lifting a finger, the people of Jerusalem had been delivered. Sennacherib packed up what was left of his army and he went home with his tail between his legs. In fact, Chronicles says he went home shame-faced, embarrassed. This mighty deliverance of the people of Jerusalem was the occasion for write, the writing of Psalm 46. This is the song that they sang in celebrating what God had done over and against the host of the Assyrian army in Sennacherib the king. 
And so we now turn our attention here to this psalm that we've been singing all month, where we learn that because we trust always in God's presence, because God is always present with us, we must trust Him. Because God is always present with us, His people must trust Him. This is the lesson that the people of Jerusalem had learned, and they recorded it for us in this psalm. We see that in basically three parts, really three scenes that are given to us in Psalm 46. The first is in verses 1 through 3, where we see that God is our help when life is falling apart around us. In the first verse, we see God's presence that assures us of protection. Notice it with me in verse 1. God is our refuge. The word here means shelter. It means rock of refuge or strength. Strength is the next word. A rock of refuge or shelter. Strength, he says. That which, that which gives us courage. That which makes us strong. And then it says he's a very present help in trouble. Trouble describes people when they are in a, a tight place. When they are, we might say, cornered. Right? There's no way out. That's the word that the, is the idea here in trouble. So, so when our back is against the wall, when there's no way out, God is still present with us. And the admonition is simple. Don't be afraid. Right? I mean, that's the, the response. Because God is our, our refuge, because God is our strength, that calls for our trust. Verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. So the statement is made in verse 1. This is who God is. He's our refuge. He is our strength. He is always present with us. Therefore, conclusion, verse 2, we will not fear. And that, that courage in the face of difficulty extends even to the most calamitous of situations. God can be trusted even when the, the worst cataclysm imaginable is happening around us. Notice in verse 2, therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Right now in California, they're experiencing forest fires, wildfires that are that are wreaking havoc on large portions of the population. There are all kinds of calamities like that in our world. We used to live in Florida, Hurricane Alley, where, where we would watch as the storm would brew out in the, in the Atlantic, and then it would make its way in the Gulf, and everybody would brace for this cataclysm. Earthquakes is actually probably what is being referred to. The language here in Psalm 46 kind of indicates the, the earthquake, the, the, this, this earthquake that actually shakes the mountains, the, the very thing that you would think is sure, the earth itself, the mountains themselves, even if they are shaken, God can be trusted. Though the earth be removed, the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Even if all of the landscape we know fell apart, God can still be trusted and we must not fear. Well, this is important for us as God's people to think about the fact that because God is with us, we 
need not fear. Think about one of the names of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Certainly in Psalm 46, we're reminded that God is present with his people in Jerusalem. Even in a more profound way, it is true for believers today. For those who trust in him alone, he is our present refuge. He is our future victory. Even if the unthinkable happens, the earth implodes. God's faithfulness remains. God keeps his promises, and because of that, that can drive away fear. So what would be your equivalent to the earth crumbling? What would it mean for the, the, the wor- your world to be in upheaval? An economic collapse that decimates all of your investments? Your family imploding? Your, your health being snatched away from you by illness or by injury? The person that you're counting on betraying you, what would it look like for your world to fall apart? The psalmist says, because God is true, because He is always present, because of His character, even if the world falls apart, literally, or even if your world falls apart figuratively. We do not need to fear. Now, many Christians have this attitude, well, I can survive. I can make it through this. I'm going I'm to get through this. But God actually wants more for his people. God's presence not only helps us survive the attacks of the wicked, but it helps us to to thrive with joy. And this is what verses 4 through 7 reminds us of. God is our source of joy when other sources fail. First of all, because he meets our needs. Notice in verse 4, it says, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Now you look at that verse, verse 4, and you say, what in the world is all this river and city and this stuff about? Okay, now what is the holy, where was the holy place? Where was the tabernacle of the Most High? Where was the temple? Eventually. It was Jerusalem, right? This is the very city that we're talking about. There is a river whose streams will make glad the city of God. So in verses 4 through 7, the scene now shifts. It focuses in on the city of Jerusalem where the people are confined by the Assyrian army that's camped around them. Now think about what a siege must look like in the ancient times. Right? They, they, couldn't, they couldn't order Amazon. Right? They, they, couldn't, they couldn't get a, you know, a, a bomber plane to, to come in and fly in supplies. There was no way in, there was no way out, the city was cut off, and the enemy would kind of choke the city slowly. And of course, water was the most precious of resources. There were many ancient cities that were built right on a river. The river kind of went through the city, but Jerusalem was not like that. Jerusalem did not have a river going through it. However, 
Hezekiah, very wisely, built an underground water system that connected the spring of Gihon in Kidron with the pool of Siloam, which was inside the city walls. So even in the midst of this siege, even though they ostensibly looked to be cut off from their water supply, water was still available. And so the psalmist uses this as an image, this, this freshwater spring, this, this flow, this river that came into the city was that source of sustaining and refreshment for the people who were, who were surrounded by God's enemies. And the psalmist used it as an image to remind us that there is a God who provides for us all we need. He provides with us the water of life, and that's exactly what he turns to in verse 5 when he says, God is in the midst of her. Who is her? Now it's referring back to the city that he referred to, which is made glad by these streams. God is in the midst of the city. She shall not be moved. God will help her just at break of dawn. Again, he's hearkening back to what had happened. Can you imagine what it must be like for the, the city watchkeeper in Jerusalem who, who patrols the top of that, 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 that ridge there where it, it overlooks the enemy camp. And as the sun just barely begins to peek up across the horizon, as the, as the first light of morning spreads itself over the Assyrian camp, what it must be like to look out and see a decimated army that had been killed overnight by the angel of the Lord. Can you picture that? Can you imagine the joy that must come with that kind of a dawning as light is peeking up? Now, maybe you've noticed in this passage that the pronouns are plural, right? They're, they're us and we, they're plural. God is speaking to his people as a whole. And that applies to his people even today. John 7, I'm reminded of when Jesus speaks. He stands and he cries out in John 7, 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, Jesus was not yet glorified. When speaking of the Spirit that would be given to all believers after, after His glorification, Jesus speaks of them as, as living water that flows out of us. I'm reminded of this as I think about the fact that God has given us a source of joy, of sustainment, and there is a river even within us now that God has taken up residency in each believer that makes glad, that gives joy, that, that can be more than just an attitude, I'm going to tie a, a knot in the end of my rope and I'm going to hold on and I'm going to survive this trial, but that which actually gives us what we need, that we can be joyful even in the face of hardship. We're reminded also of God's sovereignty as a source of our joy. 
God is our source of joy because He rules the world. Notice verse 6. The nations, the nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. I mean, there is no lack of disruption in the political sphere, in our world, and even in our nation. Nations are unhinged. Leaders are capricious. Various powers are are jockeying for power without regard to those who it affects. I mean, just watching the news can be a horror film. If we fail to realize what the rest of verse 6 alludes to, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. I mean, the nations can clamor, but God still rules with the very sound of his voice. He can overcome the enemy. And so it may be scary for us to look at the world around us until we recognize that there is a ruler who rules over all. I wonder, who could get elected that would cause you fear? What law could be passed that that makes you afraid? What decision by the Supreme Court threatens to be our undoing? We have no reason to fear because our God reigns. So what if our tax exemption is taken away? Which is just another way of saying, what if the government chooses to fine certain churches for their views? What if they go even further and they threaten to shut us down or imprison us? What what if they were to even threaten us with death? We must not fear because God still rules in the affairs of men. The nations rage. The, The rulers set themselves against God, as Psalm 2 says. But God is in control. Nothing has escaped his notice. He still rules in the affairs of men. We also see that God provides us a source of joy because he's always there. He always remains with us. The Lord of hosts, verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. You might be interested to know that this word translated refuge here in verse 7 is actually a different word than what is used in verse 1. Um, This is a word for a stronghold, a tower, a a fortress. This is the idea of, of in the ancient world, what people would run into when the enemy was pressing in. They They would run to the tower, to the fortress, to the place of safety. And it says, the God of Jacob is our refuge. I also want you to notice in passing that this is not just some generic God. This is not just just any old force will do. This is not just, well, your God works for you and my God works for me. No, this is very specific, that there is one God who is qualified to protect us. He is the tower. He is the fortress. The God of Jacob is the one in which we can hide, we can run to for protection. When our enemies assail us, when the difficulties of life become too challenging for us, when we are bombarded by all of the things that weigh on us, we can run to Him. But 
but the fact is he's with us. He's always there. And then he closes verse 7 with that word that we've been reminded of before. Think on that. Consider that. Selah. So we've seen that God is our help in verses 1 through 3, even if the world is falling in around us. That God is our source of joy in verses 4 through 7. When other sources fail, He continues to provide for us. And we see in verses 8, 11, a third scene. And this scene shifts from inside Jerusalem to around the, around the surrounding area where the Assyrian soldiers lay dead. Their weapons and their equipment is scattered and broken, but there had been no battle because the angel of the Lord had fought this battle. And it says in our text, for us to come and see the amazing things the Lord has done. Verse 8, come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. The Lord defeated and disarmed his enemies. He destroyed their weapons and they could attack no more because God had fought on his people's behalf. Do you understand that even God's exercise of judgment can be of comfort? Certainly, it is no comfort to the one who rebels against him. But it is of comfort that God will always judge rightly. And for God's people, those who have run into his mercy, those who have run to him as the tower, as the fortress, and are harboring themselves in his mercy for them, his justice is of comfort. So what is our response? How do we take all of this truth about God? How do we meditate on it in such a way that it is meaningful, that it, that it impacts us, that it, that it changes the way we think about the things that cause us fear? Well, verse 10 is the conclusion. It is the command. It is the imperative, our response to these truths about God, verse 10, be still. In other words, quiet your heart. Calm yourself. Be still. And how do we do that? When we face the potential of financial collapse, or, or health collapse, or family collapse, or the perilous dangers of the world around us. How do we do that? I mean, how do we be still? How do we calm our fearful hearts? He says, be still and know that I am God. You've heard me say it before. We do what we do. We say what we say because we think what we think, because we believe what we believe about God, about himself, about God, about ourselves, and about his word. Right? How do we think about God? And this is the, the very crux of what the psalmist gets to. When things are fearful for us, when times are troubling for us, 
when there is surround, it almost seems like there surrounds us an army that would overtake us. Where do we run? We run into the one who is our tower. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God does all things for his own glory and our good. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And so this morning it would be important for us to ask ourselves the question, do I do that? When life is difficult, when I'm going through a hardship, when I fear How do I respond? Do we challenge our own hearts to be still and know that I am God? We said a moment ago that it all starts with God's mercy. You recognize that, that what separates us who, who are in this, in this picture that are inside the protection of Jerusalem, that are, that are God's people, what separates us from those that are judged without is not our own goodness, do you understand that? I mean, this is the gospel. That Jesus Christ is always with us. He provides for us a way that we can have forgiveness. And so for us, it starts with the truth of the gospel. Has there ever been a time in your life when you have repented of your sin? That is to say, you have turned from yourself, your own dependence, and you've depended on Jesus Christ alone. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus I trust that if you've never done that, today will be the day where you turn from your sin to trust Jesus Christ and have forgiveness of sin in Him. And then we can know that He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is the one in whom we hide. And He will be exalted. God is actually glorifying Himself through your situation. As the army surrounded Jerusalem, and this was not an ideal situation. This is not what they wanted to go through. Yet God did something powerful. He did something mighty. He glorified himself even in the midst of their situation. God, the God of Jacob, is our refuge. Be still and know that I am God. This Thursday is October 31st. October 31st, 1517 is perhaps the most important day in Protestant history and the development of Protestant theology. It was the day, most of you know, that Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, nailed to the chapel door in Wittenberg, Germany, a list of 95 propositions to be debated, 95 complaints against the teaching and practice of the medieval Roman church. 95 theses. And with this event, the Protestant Reformation took wings. But it's important to know that Luther didn't exactly have an easy life. I mean, he didn't, didn't nail these to the, to the church door, and then he was suddenly, you know, popular. No, in fact, in 1520, he was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church and then he was tried and convicted as an outlaw. He lived much of his life in kind of a quasi-fugitive mode. Some sought his life. Others merely attacked him verbally. 
The church building where he pastored itself was, uh, came uh, under attack. And of course we know that Martin Luther made many great changes in his life, but also went through times of great discouragement. Luther wrote the hymn that we sang a few moments ago, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That is his rendition of Psalm 46. It is based on this text that we've considered this morning. We don't know the exact date, um, but it is generally believed to be um, written around 1529, uh, around the same time that the word Protestant was first used and became a rallying cry for the Protestant Reformation. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, a, a protectorate, never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. The enemy will surround us. But we know as the hymn ends, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Lord, we thank you for your word, what it reminds us of this morning, that we can trust in you, that you are our strength, that you are our help. May we as your people be quick to run to you in times of need, in times of difficulty. I'm going to give you